but um, Psalms chapter 11. The, the, the question is, when do you fight or when do you flee? When do you fight or when do you flee? Uh, there's a guy by the name of Raymond Edmund, V. Raymond Edmund. He, he was famous for the statement, it is always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Is that true? I mean, there are times where we need to back up. Is there times where we need to punt and live to fight for another day or run um, and flee? What, what, is, what is the best um, plan? I mean, does Scripture tell us to run from our problems, from our challenges, um, or does it tell us to stay and fight? Or does it depend? I mean, part of that answer is, yeah, there's some times where we're told to flee from some things, to run. We're told in um, Genesis with the story of Joseph, um, he is confronted by um, another man's wife who uh, has, puts her affections upon Joseph, and he, uh, she tries to attack him and um, you know, show him some love, which he did not want, nor was it appropriate. And so he just takes off and runs, leaves his cloak, his jacket behind, and he runs for everything. He flee, we're told in Scripture to flee from immorality. So there's some things we're supposed to run away from. Flee from immorality. Flee from sin. But do we run and do we hide and do we fight? Or do we stay and fight when we're confronted by um, challenges, when we're confronted by that, when the odds are stacked against us? What do we do as believers? Do we live a life of faith or do we live a life um, where we flee? What voices do we um, listen to? Are the voices telling us to flight we, we need to get out of here run for your life or do the there's a voice that we should be listening to telling us to stay and fight there's something uh in the christian faith um that i think we could use a little bit of and that's just a dose of of boldness to stay and fight and to not cower to you know if we live we live if we die we die whatever it's in god's hands but one way or another we're gonna we're gonna fight we're gonna press forward um and we're gonna trust god with what he wants us to do and in psalms 11 we have another just beautiful very honest um confession and an issue with in david's life he's he's been confronted by some enemies that are zoning in on him and they're going to destroy him and we see him with this confession of confidence in god that he's trusting that god in his timing and in his way is going to deliver him and so that's kind of the context to this psalm so i want to take a moment let's just read psalms 11 and uh and then we'll uh break it down a little bit all right so psalms 11 to the choir master of david in the lord i take refuge how can you say to my soul flee like a bird to the mountain for behold the wicked bend their bow they have fitted their arrow to the string and to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do that that was the one voice for him that those couple verses there those two verses let me read it that again here's here's the one voice the voice of despair the voice of flight in the lord i take refuge how can you say to my soul flee like a bird to your mountain for behold the wicked bend their bow and they have fitted their arrow to, to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright at heart if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do so the counsel that david had received at this point in his life uh there is somebody that is after him and after uh the people of god and they have set their sights on him if if this was a modern day thing what they would say is man they have traced the laser on you you know how uh snipers rifles you have that little laser dot and uh, you see movies and everything when that laser's on you that's not a good day right that's that's a bad moment so basically what's what's going on here 
is you have this arrow that's stretched. He's fitted the arrow to the string, meaning he's pulled that thing back, and, and this, the, the marksman has that, and the X is on David. And they're watching him in darkness. They've got him, the arrow trained to David, and they're, they're about to take him out. And so the counsel is, look, you, you've got a sniper on you, man. There's no way you're getting out of this thing. You need to run and flee to the hills. And if you don't flee to the hills right now, if you don't run right now, uh, then our king is going to be destroyed. The leadership of our country is going to fall. And our, our government and this nation, the people of God, will be overthrown by these evil forces, by these wicked en- uh, enemies that are, that are coming against us. That, that's the premise there. So the counsel to him is you need to run because if you, get out, if you get killed, David, if you die, if you stay and you fight foolishly, that they've got, the sniper's got the mark on you. And he's going to take you out, and everything will be lost. Everything will be over. Everything will be gone. That's the thought. What do you do, you do in that situation? What do you do? I mean, how would you respond to that? How, how should David have responded to that? Yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I probably need to, yeah, let me get out of here before I get killed, because if I get killed, that's going to be really bad for the, you know, what, what, what is your faith in? What is your trust in? What is your hope in? So our tendency would be to look at ourselves and to begin to justify and come up with things that, yeah, I really do. I am very important. And um, if I get killed, then what will happen? There's all these voices going through David's head. So it's a voice of despair. And you have, you can see it vaguely there, but you have this bow and arrow stretched. But two, two things that come to mind in the statements that they say to him. The first one is fear. And the second one is frustrations. Let's look at fear. In verse three, it says, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? If that phrase, if the foundations are destroyed, that's the fear phrase. What are we going to do when the foundation, in other words, the government, the governmental foundation, our king, is taken out? What, what are we going to do? And so there's this statement of fear. Statement of fear. I, what's the future going to have? And then the second kind of nuance to that, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That second phrase, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, fear what are the righteous going to do? Frustration. Fear. What's going to happen if, if things don't go? If, if, if this happens, if this calamity, if this tragedy, if this whatever, then what's going to happen next? And then there's this frustration. What are we going to do? What's going to happen to the rest of us? What's going to happen to so fear that the foundation will be destroyed? And then frustration that things aren't going to turn out the way that I want them to, to turn out, which, which surfaces several questions that we have to think about in our own lives. And I'd encourage you to write down um, these questions and ponder them, um, if not now, but even later. It, it, the first one is, what do you fear? What do you fear? What, what is it that, wh- who has their mark on you? What is the thing that, um, that you're fearful of? What, you can maybe rephrase it this way. Uh, what's the what if in your life? What if such and such happens? But what if such and what if this goes down? What if this happens? What if they leave me? What if this fails? What if, my, what if I lose my job? What if I lose my health? What if I lose this thing or that thing? Or it might be a relationship. It could be, um, you know, it could be a lot of different things that you fear. But what if, if, if that's your question, if that's where you live, if you live in the land of what ifs, there's a problem with your focus. You're, you have, the land of what ifs is, is the land of the voices of despair. The land of what ifs is the questions of those who, who flee. That's a dangerous place to live. 
It's a dangerous place. You say you're saying we shouldn't think about the future. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't think about the future. It's fine to be prepared. It's fine to count the cost. Jesus told us that. Count the cost. Think through this before you follow me. Make sure that you're all in. You know, are you really repenting and and, um, walking away from your ways and putting your full trust in me? Count the cost. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Think ahead. You know, have a plan for the future. That's fine. But but at some point, you have to stop. In fact, um, had a wise, um, godly man give us, give Janet and I some counsel um, early in our, our marriage, actually right before we got married, and, um, and he gave us a couple statements that I've never forgotten, and I've used this a bazillion times in, in counseling, but, but the first one is to not live in the future. If you live in the future, the result of this is going to be uh, fear. If you live in the future, if you live in the land of what ifs, you're constantly thinking about what's going to happen if this happens, what else is going to do, you, you become consumed by that, you will be paralyzed by fear. So if you're an anxious person, if you have a lot of fear in your life, then you need to ask the question, am I, and I, am I inappropriately living in the future? Am I worrying about things that God has not called me to worry about? The second thing is don't live in the past. Because if you live in the past, you're going to be paralyzed by anger. Some of you have a lot of anger. You have a lot of bitterness. You have a lot of um, maybe guilt in your life. Where does that come from? That becomes you're living in the past. You know, in other words... We look to the future. We can plan in the future. We can think about some things and, and make sure we're strategic with our time, the days that God has given us. But if you dwell in the future and you become paralyzed by anxiety and fear, understand that, that that's sinful. God's not called you to live there. He's called you to walk with him today. That's why the word of God is called a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. Okay, Lamps don't illuminate the next 80 miles. Okay, They just illuminate the next step. So God's word illuminates the next step. God walks with us and, and um, dwells with us today. And he calls us to not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries for its own. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So why be consumed with fear about it? It's got enough problems. Let's just worry about today and trust God with today and walk with God today. And as far as the past goes, you can't dwell in the past. That's not a healthy thing. It's going to lead to fear or frustrations. So how do you... You know, what, what, do you, what do you fear? What do you, second question, what do you flee to? What do you flee from? But where do you flee? What is it that you use to medicate yourself when you have anxiety, when you have fear, when trouble comes, when challenges? You say, oh, so you're saying, you're talking about drugs. Is that what you're talking about? You know, prescription meds, whatever. I'm, I'm not talking about, it could be that. But the reality is every single one of us have something that we run to that, that we use to self-medicate ourselves when we become fearful, okay? It could be sleep. It could be um, lack of sleep. It could be work. It could be um, television. It could be movies. It could be video games. It could be um, work ethic. It could be our jobs. It could be our hobbies. It could be a relationship, You know, it could be a lot of different things. It certainly could be medicinal. It could be prescribed or unprescribed. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be a lot of things. But what do you run to when you feel anxious, when you feel um, anxiety, when you feel challenges in your life? What do you run to to make yourself feel better? Whatever that thing is that gives you security, that gives you confidence, that gives you peace, 
It is, it is, for you, it is a savior. It saves you from the anxiety. It saves you from the fear. It saves you from uh, the burdens of, of the land of what ifs. And if it's not Jesus, it is an idol in your life. See, what David learned, as we'll see a little bit more, his challenge, when he was, heard the voice of, of, of despair, his confession was faith in Christ or faith in God, ultimately in Jesus, he trusted in, in that God was a king and God was on his throne and that was not going to change. And so he trusted in, um, in the, the king of kings, which we know to be Jesus, in a fuller understanding of the Bible now. And so that was where David looked. And so his functional savior in that moment wasn't to flee for security, wasn't to listen to the counsel of the people that surrounded him, but was to trust God. And so what's the, what is it that you flee to? What is the, the functional Savior in your life? The this third question is, uh, how do you rationalize your safety? There are, our tendency is to come up with some kind of way to justify why we should play it safe. I, I love this in terms of uh, missions. I mean, everybody, I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people think, you know, missions is great. and It's awesome. People follow God and go to the mission field. And it's, man, it's so neat to see other people going to the mission field and sacrifice. But, you know, the thought of us going to the mission field? No, I don't need to do that. Or our kids even worse. Our kids going overseas to the mission field? Man, that is, that is difficult. I, mean, I had a, a neighbor down the street I just met, and um, another neighbor told me that, that, um, that their children, that, that this guy's uh, daughter, I think, or son, I forget, they're, they're married, um, one of their children, and his family, they just went to a Middle Eastern country um, a couple years ago um, to serve God. And, he, you know, he just said, it, yeah, it's been a tough, um, tough thing for him. It's been really difficult. And it is. It's never easy. Uh, to, there's sacrifice. There's, it's difficult to um, send people out on a uh, mission. But it's really easy to rationalize. But I, I remember one summer, I uh, was, you know, praying about where God wanted, what he wanted me to do for the summer. And I was thinking about doing a summer project with with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, a great missions organization. And they had them all over the country. And um, I ended up going to Daytona Beach, and we spent the summer there and leadership training, different things, and ministry on the beaches there and, um, and working a job there. It was a, it was a great summer. But one of the options I was looking at is possibly going to California. And I remember, I remember my mom, she was like, no, no, California, earthquakes, things like that. If you go to California, there's going to be an earthquake, and the whole California is going to go off into the Pacific Ocean. I don't think you need to be in California. God doesn't want you in California. You don't need to go to California. Don't go to California. My mom's offense, she's speaking as a mother, and that's fine. But, but there's that tendency that, man, if you do that, there's you, something, something bad will happen to you. And I, I have sat down with many parents in, in trying to talk to them about taking their children, when I was a college pastor previously, on their first time out of the country to go to Zimbabwe or Zambia or um, Thailand or different places and sitting down with parents, they're like, why would you take my child? That's not safe for them to go to a third world country. And I want to say, you know, it's safe for them to drive on the roads of this city. I mean, like, it's safe to be in this city. It's safe to be on Roan Street. Safe to be on State of Franklin. Safe to be on 26. I mean, you know, there's nowhere safe. Um, we just need to be in God's will. Let's just do what God calls us to do. Because God has not called us to safety. He's called us to surrender. And so the tendency for all of us is to justify and to rationalize our safety. Well, God wouldn't want me to do that. Well, let me give you a, a thought on that. I, I have never feared going out of the country to different places. I mean, I just trust 
you know, kind of the end of the book of Mark, that God's going to sustain us. He's going to protect us. The point of the book of the end of the book of Mark is not that you're supposed to handle snakes. If you're a Christian, you can read that later um, and you'll still be alive. That is not the, the point of the book. The point of the end of the book of Mark is that as we trust God in fulfilling the Great Commission and advancing with the gospel, okay, we don't need to fret what's going to happen to us. As, as, as we're obeying God's will to advance the gospel, even though there's great risk involved, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily will be safe. We might die in the process of that. But you know what? The Bible's full of people who died. In fact, all of the disciples except for John died in advancing the gospel. Were they out of God's will? No. In fact, Jesus died in creating the gospel. That's the point of the message. But he died with faith in that the Father would resurrect him, and indeed he did. And so you don't need to fear. What are you, what are you afraid? You're going to die? I mean, that's the whole point of following Jesus. We don't have to fear death. And so we just push forward with that. We trust God. I, so, I, you know, there was a, a summer where we um, went to Thailand and they were, met this guy by the name of uh, Mr. P. Mr. P had um, some kind of disease on his hand where it was all shriveled up. And um, it was just the skin was really messed up and it was, it was bad. Um, and he also had an injury on his foot where a tree branch had hit it and it just did not get the medical um, care that he needed. And it was shriveled up too. And um, so we had a, a pre-med student with us, and she dressed the wound and cleaned the wound on his foot, um, tried to take care of this uh, older gentleman that, that had a farm, and he had some sons that worked for him on his farm still. So, um, but, but he was very embarrassed to go around because of this um, hand, this disease on his hand. And he, Mr. P was, uh, was not a believer. He was um, entrenched in Buddhism. And part of that was that there must be something wrong with him. He must have sinned or done something bad because that's why his hand is messed up. And so we just saw it as an opportunity. One of, one of the pastors in that village was praying for Mr. P to follow Jesus. And so he, he wanted us to meet this guy and to come talk to him. And so we went, we sat down with Mr. P. And um, before we, we left, I just felt compelled. I want to pray for him. And I wanted to pray that God would heal his hand. And I'm not, you know, a healer guy that, you know, we don't have a, you know, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock healing service. Um, as if you could schedule that. I don't understand the churches that do. But um, when God wants to heal, he heals. When God doesn't want to heal, he doesn't heal. When he wants to heal by taking somebody home, he heals by, you know, we can't schedule that. But I just felt compelled that I just need to pray for this guy. And I don't know if God healed him or not. But I, I just remember um, putting my hands upon his hands, over his hands, and praying, touching that hand, and praying that God would heal Mr. P's hands. I don't know what disease or what issue he was dealing with, but just, God, for your glory, would you heal Mr. P's hands that he would see you, that he would know you, that you would take the, the blinds off of his eyes and he would see that Jesus is powerful. Jesus saved. Jesus prayed for Mr. P. It was an awesome time. We were walking away and I asked um, Pastor Tom, the guy that we were with, he was a um, Thai believer and a pastor. Pastor Tom, what, what's, what's the uh, what's matter with Mr. P's hands? He's like, oh, I think he has leprosy. I'm like, oh, great. Thanks for telling me that. Hand cleanser? You know, it's somebody, you know, you know, um, I'm getting my hands cleansed or whatever. And I, you know, I did cleanse my hands and I washed my hands later. But, you know, honestly, I didn't lose a wink of sleep over that. I think, you know, when I come home, I'm going to have leprosy now. I'm going to be in sickness. I'm going to be messed up. Or I just, you know what? God's bigger than that. I'm not going to worry about that. So you just trust God. When you're in God's will, you're doing what God wants you to do. Whether you live, whether you die, it doesn't matter. If you're in his will, why does it matter? Just be faithful. Now, the, the flip side of that is don't tempt God. Don't tempt God. There was a time on a mission trip where I bungee jumped off of a very tall bridge. And that was probably very foolish. Okay, I, 
that would God preserve me for jumping off of a bridge? Probably not. That was a stupid. I was that was on my own on that one. Janet would agree. You were on your own, um, and uh, glad to do it. It was a lot of fun. But but that you know, so, so, so God doesn't call us to tempt Him and to do stupid things. But but if we're being faithful and we calls us to something, um, we don't need to cower and try to justify our safety. I don't know what God's calling you. He might, he's probably not calling you to go to Pakistan or to go to you know, Afghanistan and establish a Christian school. or so, you know, Probably not calling you to do that. Maybe he's just calling you to talk to a coworker. Maybe he's just talk, calling you to, to talk to uh, somebody down the street. Maybe he's just calling you to um, have a tea party for the ladies that hang out in your neighborhood during the, during the uh, week, if you're a lady, of course. Uh, you know, to, to minister to some of the, the stay-at-home moms or the people that are in your neighborhood. Maybe, maybe he's calling you guys to grill out one night. Maybe he's calling you um, and invite all the neighborhood. Maybe, who knows what he's calling you to? But don't, don't try to get out of it by justifying your safety. But God, if I do, they might come over and destroy my house. They might see that. They might do this. They might do that. Don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to the voices. They have fixed their bow the wicked bend their bow. They fitted the arrow to the, sh- to the string. Shoot to the shoot in the dark at the upright at heart. But if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? So what does God tell us to do? Is there ever a time right to flee? Again, flee from immorality. But the examples, let me give you some examples of people who stood in the midst of questionable odds. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 10, there's one. 2 Samuel, Joab, Abishai. Joab and Abishai. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Well, you can just write that down and look it up later, or you can flip there should you choose. Verse 9, it says, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Amorites. So they have the Syrians are coming in from one side, the um, Amalekites are coming in from the other side. There's no, they're getting hit from both sides. It's a little hard to fight two battles in the same place. So they're, they're in trouble. And he said, this is his statement, verse 11. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too, um, are too strong for you, then I will come and I will help you. So in other words, if, if we start losing on our side, you come over and you help us with our side. And if you start losing on your side, then we'll come over and we'll help you. Which renders the question, what if you're both losing? What are you going to do then? He says, verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. Be of uh, courageous. Um, Let us be courageous. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love that. Let the Lord do what seems good to him. Translation, we might lose. So what? We just are going to fight and we're going to be faithful until it's over. So when the dust settles, if the Amorites have won or if the Syrians have won or if we've won, doesn't matter. That's in God's hands. But what God has called us to do is to fight. And so we're going to fight until the battle's over. And regardless of who wins on the temporal scale, we're going to trust God with the big picture. That's, that's the fight. Second example is Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. You, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. The three Hebrew boys, um, their, their um, Babylonian names were 
um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and the three Hebrew boys, um, were told to worship, to bow down to the towering golden altar that was, was set up before them and uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused to bow. They refused to bow. And here's here's the, the key phrase here. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Because he said, why aren't you bowing? Everybody at the, this, they were going to, they're playing a big song. Trumpets were blowing. Everything was, you know, and when they kick it up a gear and, and they have the, the key change, everybody's supposed to bow down to worship this golden altar. And everybody bows and the three Hebrew boys are just standing. <laughs> they didn't bow. They're like, oh, okay, they maybe they missed, they probably didn't. Let's go back through the instructions again. Here's what we're going to do. And let me just remind you guys, if you don't bow, we're going to heat the furnace that was used to heat up uh, the, the metal hot enough to where we can molt it and, and um, melt it and uh, mold it into the shapes we needed to make this giant statue. We're going to heat up to seven times um, you know, the, its normal temperature, and we're going to throw you in there if you don't bow. Okay, all right, everybody got it? All right, let's do this again. And they run through it again, and it hits the note, key change, everybody drops, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're still whistling and standing up. They don't, they don't drop. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this morning, uh, in this matter. If this be so, if, it, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What, what, what did he say? He said, our God is more than capable of delivering us from your fiery furnace. We're really not worried about your fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow and we're not going to give up and we're not going to worship your false god. We're not doing it. It ain't going to happen. Whether we live, whether we die, it doesn't matter. We're not bowing to your... But understand, God can certainly deliver us. And what, what happened? God delivered them from the fiery furnace. Pretty awesome. Uh, Esther, chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. Esther told them um, to reply to Mordecai. And Mordecai comes to her and says, look, here's the deal. Um, you have become queen. This Hebrew woman has become queen. And he, they're talking to her about going to the king because there's been this conspiracy deal that's been cooked up. And they're trying to find a way to kill all of the Hebrew people, all the Israelites. And so uh, Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, you need, to, you need to go to the king and you need to tell him the plan that has been hatched against God's people and tell him who you are and tell him who your family is and um, that maybe God, this is the only chance we have that God's going to spare our nation, I mean our people. So you need to go in. And she's, the problem with that, it might seem like a simple request. Yeah, the queen go to her husband, I mean, Happy wife, happy life. I mean, if he wants to keep her happy, he'll let... But that's not how things worked back then. And the kind of deal was, if he goes, if she goes in uninvited into his throne room, she would be killed. That's typically what happens. And by the way, the previous, the previous wife was killed because she uh, didn't abide by those rules. And so uh, it was very strict. And she couldn't just walk into the king. The king was known to be like they were considered almost a god. And so uh, a demigod, and, and if, if she just goes rolling into the God's throne room, it's not going to work. And so it was a fearful thing. So they fasted and they prayed, and then she knew that God had called her to do that, and she needed to do it. And so there's a famous statement you, I'm sure, have heard, but here's the context. It was what I just shared. Here's the verses, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, the city that they were in, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days. 
night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And, key phrase, if I perish, I perish. So, okay, God's called me to do this. I can justify my safety or I can be obedient to be who God has called me to be. And who knows, maybe God has placed me in this place for such a time as this, which is part of the story. And so I'm going to go into the story. You pray. I'm going to have my friends pray. Um, my life group's going to pray. That was her girls. And, uh, and then we're, we're going to pray. And then I'm going to go into the throne room and I'm going to talk to the king. And if I perish, then I perish. She, she had surrendered it all. What, what's the worst that can happen? She, either way, she needed to be obedient to God. And so th- that's three wonderful examples where people in the Bible, they had no idea how it was going to come out. And yet God gave them the grace to walk through. Luke chapter 21, verse 13 through 19. Let me just read this for you. There will be an opportunity for you to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance, you will gain your lives. What, what is he saying? He's saying that there will come a time where it's going to get really, really bad. And some of you are even going to die. But understand that I will sustain you. What is that? How, can, how can we die but not, not die? Well, there's, there's the first death and then there's second death. Okay, And what he's saying is you might die earthly, but you'll live forever with me. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to um, sustain you. So don't fear those things. Don't fear those things. And he said, well, how will I handle it in that moment? God, the point of this verse, Luke uh, 21, is, is Jesus is telling them that I will give you the grace you need to say what needs to be said in the moment of um, challenge. And so you just seek me, trust me, and I will give you what you need. Hebrew 11, verses uh, 20, uh, 32, don't flip there, but 32 through 38 is an example of some that God preserved and some who suffered. Some never got to see the thing that they suffered for on earth, but they saw the heavenly city. Some got to see it. Some hung in there. God preserved them. It happens of both. We don't know what God's plan is for us, but it doesn't matter. If we perish, if we perish, who knows? Maybe, uh, you know, God, God can do what he sees fit. God can do whatever he wants. If God chooses to preserve us, he can preserve us. But either way, I'm not bowing down to that altar. I'm not laying my life down um, in fear or for flight, but I'm going to trust God to deliver us should he choose to deliver us. That that was the heartbeat of these passages. Uh, John Piper said, and don't waste your life, um, he said, he meant that you would have everything you need to do his will and to be eternally and supremely happy in him. Let me, let me say it again. It, in response to that Luke 21, 30, 13 through 19, that uh, you will, you'll be put to death, but a hair on your head will um, not perish. What, what is he saying? He meant that you would have everything you need to do his will and be eternally and supremely happy in him. 
He said, well, dying doesn't make me happy. Well, it doesn't make you temporally happy, but it will make you eternally happy. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it, nobody likes pain. I don't like pain. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to, I don't want that. But, but how does scripture view these things? Well, Paul said that the challenges of our life are like momentary light afflictions as compared to the surpassing glory of Christ and his riches in heaven. Momentary light afflictions. That means that the worst suffering that man has ever or will ever experience on this earth is a momentary light affliction. What, that's, like a, that's like a hiccup. Like, oh, that's, that hurt a little bit. That's it. And as compared to heaven, it, uh, listen, there's going to be a day where you're going to look back and you'll be like, man, I was such a wimp. <laughs> that stuff we had, to, I mean, that was so worth it. I mean, heaven is so much better than those tough days of suffering and challenges and tribulations and and calamities and the things that I had to go through in this that lifetime was so insignificant. Why was I such a wimp going through that? If I had, if I could see then what I see now, I would realize that this isn't that big of that stuff wasn't that big of a deal. And by the way, that is David's point. Let me read it for you again and see how the conversation changes. Again, take refuge in the Lord. I take refuge. How shall you say to my soul the voices of despair, voices of flight? Flee like a bird to the mountain, for behold, the wicked bend their bow, have fitted their arrow to, to the string, to shoot at the dark of the, the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? That's the one voice. So what is the second voice that comes up? Here's the second voice. The Lord is in his holy temple. Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but the soul, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. So what's the response? What's the response when you're challenged? Hey, run, man, you better run for your life. It's going to get bad. Give up. Play it safe. Don't risk it. Don't jump out. Don't talk to them. Don't, you know, listen, run to your escapes. Run to your functional savior. Run to your thing. Hey, drink this, smoke this, go do this, run to that. Get away from the trouble. What, 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 do, you, what do you do? You gain a vision of heaven. What's the vision God has for the voice or the vision of deliverance. The vision of deliverance or the voice of faith. What is it? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Uh, one commentator, Kidner, he said, the king is in his residence, not in flight. The king is in his residence, not in flight. I, I know this week, um, you know, I don't know if we're, you were living in uh, Washington County, or just, uh, but if you pretty much anywhere around here the last two weeks, you probably had some, um, high waters in your, you know, coming down your street or your gutters or something. And, you know, sometimes the waters rise. I mean, you don't just, you don't think that there's going to be floods here, but, um, you know, even Scotty and Susan talked, showing us pictures this week of, of water coming up to their step. I mean, a one inch more, if it got up to their step, one, one more inch up, and it would have flooded their house. You know, God's throne room is, n- it's, it's never 
in risk of flood. So if, if we lose our earthly possessions, so we lose our earthly possessions. We have an inheritance in heaven that's quite secure. Moth will not affect it. Robbers can't get to it. Rust is not going to. Mold's not going to take care. We don't have to worry about the things of this world. Listen, all this stuff is temporal. I mean, it's all going to, all the stuff you value is going to break or be sold in a garage sale by your children or grandchildren for 50 cents, okay? Okay, that car that you think is so wonderful, whatever, I mean, your kids are going to spill their coffee on it or, you know, somebody's going to buy it from you and they're going to leave a cigarette burn. It's going to burn the upholstery and that beautiful leather seat that you're so concerned with keeping clean. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, all this stuff's going to burn. It's all going to be sold in a garage sale one day. In fact, we're hoping to sell a lot of our stuff in a garage sale here soon. Um, you know, the downside. It's, it's all going to be gone. And things that you value, you think are so precious and wonderful, you, you know, it's the eye of the behold, beholder. So let's behold something a little of greater value. Let's get our eyes off of stuff. Let's get our eyes on to the Creator. And let's recognize, instead of worrying about the arrow on us, let's worry about the one who's on the throne. And look to God, the voice, the vision of deliverance, the voice of faith. If the earthly foundation shakes, then God can rebuild it. If the earthly foundations fall, God can rebuild it. Our foundations and our only hope is in God. Our only hope is in God. And so we got to look to him. It says that his eyes see. What does that mean? His eyes see. When it refers to the eyes of God, it's always a kind of, usually, it's it's an illusion of his omniscience, that he sees, he knows all. He sees all, he knows all. God knows, he knows the story. He knows the beginning, he knows the future, he knows the present, he knows there's an arrow on you, he knows that there's crosshairs on you. He knows what's going on. Don't think that God doesn't know. So when, when life is so crazy and you're freaked out and you're, you're living in the land of what ifs and you're fearful about the future, understand that God knows. He sees all. God's not napping. God's not sleeping. God's not wringing his hands. God isn't, you know, hasn't, you know, gotten off the throne and gone to the bathroom for a couple minutes. He just wasn't paying attention. God knows. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. You go to sleep. God doesn't go to sleep. You have to sleep at night. God doesn't have to go to sleep at night. You have night and day. God does not have night and day. In fact, in heaven, there is no night and day. It just always is illuminated because God is the light. God's awake. You sleep, God's awake. He doesn't nap. He doesn't doze off. God sees. He knows. Secondly, it says, um, not only does he see, his eyelids test the children of men. This is what the phrase is there in the original language of the Hebrew. It says, his eyelids draw close. What is he talking about? So you ever seen somebody thinking or whenever you're thinking about something intently, okay, you, the tendency is to squint your eyes a little bit and just to, and what you're, or you're drawing your eyelids close. That's the picture that the language is saying. He's saying God has taken his eyelids and he's kind of brought them in. He's thinking. God sees and he tests the children of men. Eyelids draw close, a picture of observation and pondering. So God does not lose sight of the righteous or the actions of the wicked. God ponder these things. God sees these things. God's thinking about. He's pondering. He's aware of, and he's wondering what is really underneath the hood in our lives. He knows, but he observes and watches how we respond to see what our faith is really in. My faith's in Jesus. Okay, well, then how come every time tribulation and challenges come, you don't run to Jesus. Because if your faith is in you, I would kind of think that you would run to Jesus, right? God knows that God's looking at that. Hmm, it's interesting. Every time troubles come, 
They seem to run to the world. Is that really? Where who's their faith really in, right? God sees. He knows. His eyes are trained on. He knows what's happening. So the Lord tests the righteous. But the soul, um, his soul hates the wicked, the ones who love violence. Let him rain down coals on the wicked. But it's a picture of sudden and final judgment. Um, the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Remember Jesus on the cross, or right before the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, his last prayer to the Father before the cross? God, let this cup pass from me. That picture, that cup, traced back to Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament like here, that's a picture of the cup of judgment. See, Jesus drank the cup of judgment so that you don't have to fear the cup of judgment. Now, those who choose not to put their faith in Jesus, they're going to drink a cup of judgment. And that cup is going to be the cup that the wicked are going to drink that has coals and um, fire and sulfur and fire and brimstone and that imagery that we hear that we like to avoid and think, well, I don't like to go to church that preaches fire and brimstone and you know, and uh, yeah, I don't either if that's all they preach, but that is a cup that those who reject Jesus are going to drink. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus can rest safely knowing that the Father has sent his Son to drink that cup for us. He has absorbed that wrath. He, man, he already drank that cup. I don't have to fear that. But the wicked do need to fear that. Those that are apart from Christ, they need to fear that. Because God's mind, his eyes are on the righteous, the Lord. For the Lord, the righteous, he loves the righteous deeds. Why? He loves to see his children who have a relationship with him now because his son Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. He loves to see them in, in trusting in the Father, looking to the throne in heaven, trusting in the midst of calamity and challenges, knowing that, that if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Who knows what the Lord will do? God's able to raise us, or he might have us die. It doesn't really matter, because either way, I'm not surrendering my soul to the world. I'm not surrendering my soul to my flesh. I'm not surrendering my soul to fear, to anxiety. I'm trusting in the Father. So the last two questions I want to ask you, and then we're done. Do you seek self-preservation? Do you seek self-preservation? That way, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can my soul say? Are you about self-preservation? Because self-preservation looks to God to be our refuge. It's, we want a refuge from God. I want God to give me a refuge. And if that's all you look for in God, then you're missing it. God's not just your refuge. But, but at the very end of the chapter, he comes full circle and he says, the upright shall behold his face. So are you about self-preservation or are, do you seek his face? In other words, are you looking for a refuge from God or are you looking for a relationship with God? Is God your refuge or is God your relationship? Because he says the righteous will seek his face. They will behold, they will behold his face. They will see the face of God. They will one day breathe their last breath and they will awaken in the presence of Jesus. Where do you trust? Where do you look? Where's your hope? You see, there's a major difference. We don't look to God to preserve, oh God, I just, I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to get, what? It's fine to look to God to be our refuge. It's fine to look to God for be our security. It's fine to, in fact, he's telling us, but our security comes from the fact that there is a throne in heaven with God and he is sitting on it and he sees, he watches, he knows our sufferings. In fact, he knows them quite clearly because he sent his son who came to this earth, 
who suffered in every way we have suffered, was tempted in every way we have been tempted, yet without sin, and, and yet being without sin, he drank the cup of judgment that we all deserve so that we one day would not just have security of not getting our hands dirty with a little suffering in this world, but we would behold his face. One day we're going to have the privilege and the glory of looking face to face with King Jesus on the throne, knowing that it's not our foundations of our little kingdoms that we need to preserve. We don't need to worry about what our part is in his story. We just need to be thankful that we have a part in his story and surrender ourselves to let God play our part out or lead us to play our part out however he wants to. doesn't matter how. It doesn't matter if your part's a long part or a short part, if it's an easy part or if it's a hard part. It doesn't really matter. All that matters is that your story is surrendered to his bigger story because one day we're going to behold his face and the sufferings of this world will be momentary light afflictions. So where does that leave us? Well, as we wrap up, uh, it leaves us with this reality. I, I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. But if, if all you know of God is a refuge, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then you have a problem. If you look to God only about self-preservation, you say, well, I always go to church. I've gone to church ever since I was a kid or I was always, I want because I don't want to go to hell. I, I want to make sure that God, then, oh, that's a good starting point. But if you're still there, after years, I'm sorry, you've missed the boat of the point of the Christian faith. And God has made a way that you can have a personal relationship with him through Jesus, who at great cost to himself has drank that cup of wrath. And so I would call you this morning to repent of your sin and to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You say, well, I'm not good enough. I don't, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know how. That's the voices of despair. That's the voices of fighting or flighting. You need to put your faith in God and faith in Jesus to conquer whatever the bondage, whatever the, the temptations, whatever's zoned in on you and you feel like has your number, don't worry about that. Worry about the one who's on the throne, who sees, who knows. And trust in him. He can deliver you. He can set you free. He can give you salvation. And he can give you a life that is abundant as long as you have breath on this earth. And one day you're going to close your eyes and you're going to have his face. You're going to be able to open in heaven eternity present, and you're going to be face-to-face with Jesus. And I can assure you, it will be worth it.